Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, everyone. It is Thursday, January 5th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your new host, and this is Politico's Nerdcast. It's a new year, and the center of gravity has shifted for political news. Instead of following it as it unfolds state by state across the country, it's happening here in D.C. in the Capitol and the White House, and sometimes in Trump Tower. And slowly over the course of the year, those events will push out into the rest of the country as the 2018 midterms draw closer. Uh, but no matter where it's happening, we will be following it and talking about it every step of the way. So if you enjoy the Nerdcast, and we hope you do, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And with that, let's jump right into the numbers that mattered this week. Six. That is the packed confirmation schedule for President-elect Donald Trump's cabinet appointees on January 11th alone, as the new administration looks to get its people confirmed and get off to a running start. 167. That's the number of days between Trump's last press conference and his next one, which has also been scheduled for January 11th. And the number four. That's the number of Democrats who abandoned Nancy Pelosi during the public vote for Speaker when Congress came back this week. We'll talk about who they were and why it matters. All that and more on this week's Politico Nerdcast. Welcome back, Charlie Matessian. Hi, Scott. Nancy Cook, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Eli Stokels, welcome back to America. Happy New Year, Scott. Thanks. <laughs> and hello, Hadass Gold. Hello. All right. Our first data point of 2017 is six. That's how many cabinet appointees are facing Senate confirmation hearings on the Hill just next Wednesday, January 11th. It's going to be a very busy day. Nancy, walk us through it. Who's facing the Senate that day and how are we going to keep track of it all? Well, I think the goal is for us not to keep track of all of it. I think that that's definitely part of Senate leadership strategy just to have people... Uh, you know, not really be able to shine a spotlight on any one particular nominee and to really have people, you know, both the Democrats and the media really trying to scramble to cover all of these super key hearings. And so some of the hearings that we'll have that day is Senator Jeff Sessions for Attorney General, Rex Tillerson for Secretary of State. There have been a bunch of questions raised about his ties to Russia. Betsy DeVos, who's the Secretary of Education. We're also going to have um, retired General Kelly for DHS and uh, CIA Director Pompeo and then Elaine Chow for the Department of Transportation. Did we get all of them? Um, and so that's really what uh, the strategy is going to be. And it's a huge you know, play on the part of Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, to kind of make sure that we're going to, he's going to try to push through all of these Trump cabinet picks and try to get as many people in place for the incoming administration um, as soon as Trump is inaugurated on January 20th. It's almost like the strategy that uh, animals pursue on the African savannah, you know, where they, where they all congregate together and uh, the wildebeest all figure if they herd together, they're less likely to get picked off. And this is something that, that incoming administrations have done in the past. I think, you know, uh, President Obama, President-elect Obama at that time in 2009 had four hearings on one day for his cabinet uh, in 2009. Well, the, he had as many as seven even on one day. Including and, the, the, the non-cabinet 
folks. Yeah, it's and a, yeah. so it's not it's not like people haven't done this before. It's just like a playbook that McConnell is definitely putting into place now. And Charlie, I mean, talk about the media angle to covering all this. I mean, the you know when we've seen cabinet nominations falter in the past, it's been partly because there's been a media groundswell kind of around certain aspects of the the biography or the uh, you know the taxes a lot of the time with these folks. Yeah, I think there are a couple points here that uh, are worth making. First is that they don't feel, uh, the Trump administration does not feel constrained by convention in any way possible. Uh, in fact, they thumb their nose at it. So I don't think they feel like they have to hew to any strategy that's been pursued before. But also, uh, I think that the environment has changed. I mean, think back 20 years ago, the kinds of things that sank nominees would be a joke today. Smoking marijuana, a drunk driving conviction, things like that. They pale compared to not only the, the transgressions of, of, of today, but also after a campaign like that and some of the, the charges, the things that were aired and didn't appear to hurt Donald Trump. I mean, some of these things, you know, may not have the pack the same punch that they did in the past. Yeah, it seems like the, especially with regard to cabinet nominees, the things that have really tripped people up uh, in in r- the recent past have been financial. You've got uh, Linda Chavez and, uh, you know, housing and employing a, a, a Guatemalan woman um, who was undocumented. Um, you know, Bill Richardson pay-to-play investigation originating in New Mexico, taxes, uh, unpaid taxes with Tom Daschle. And Nancy, this is interesting. Uh context for the the Trump cabinet, because these people have much more complicated finances in general, I think, than maybe any cabinet we've ever seen coming in before. That's certainly true. I mean, Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Commerce Secretary, is super wealthy. Uh, Rex Tillerson has, you know, is not only wealthy, but has you know, ties to Russia, huge ties to ExxonMobil, where he's been the CEO. And I think what's different this time around is, A, the wealth of the cabinet, which is huge, and B, the fact that the Trump campaign basically did very, very little vetting of these people. And so if there's going to be anything that comes up, any tax irregularities, it's going to come up from the Senate Finance Committee that has the tax returns of Steve Mnuchin, for instance, for Treasury Secretary or Representative Tom Price for HHS. And it's going to be up to Senate staffers and IRS people who are detailed to do the vetting to come up with these things. The thing is, though, if you're pushing all of these nominees and having all the hearings you know, in the next few weeks before January 20th, maybe these issues won't come to light. And as Charlie said, maybe things that have mattered in the past won't matter this time. It seems like uh, much of it will depend on what really connects to the the damaging meta narratives. For example, like there, there's so much that you could nail all of the individual nominees for in the past that might have been a problem, whether it's Tillerson, whether it's Roth, whether it's lots of different folks and the complications of their, their taxes or their finances or, or, or whatever. They might have been a problem in the past. This year, to me, the one that sticks out is maybe Mnuchin mm-hmm. uh, because of the narrative that's developing. And you could see where a skilled uh, opposition effort there could hurt him on uh, foreclosure issues and, uh, you know, his role and his bank's role in that. I mean, that to me seems like one that might stick through a news cycle and break through. Because when you have all these nominees coming through and all these these issues at once, they tend to blur, I think, in the, in the minds of average voters. So to the, to the extent that you get something that people can understand and really uh, wrap their arms around, that's when it becomes damaging. Well, I also think the Democrats, that's basically what the Democrats are trying to do at this point. 
point. Like they don't have a single nominee that they're going after. And, you know, different factions of the party would prefer to target different people. Like Senator Elizabeth Warren is really going after Mnuchin, for instance, and has been collecting stories of people who were foreclosed upon by his mortgage company. But I feel like broadly the Democrats are just going to try to throw, you know, a lot of things at a lot of nominees and kind of see what the American public and what the media actually picks up on and and sort of run with that once it's in play. So again, getting back to the uh, African savanna analogy, (laughs) almost all the lions have to get together and single out one from the herd almost to take it down. Charlie, did you go to the African savanna on vacation? (laughs) No, but I'm a huge fan of uh, Nat Geo's Savage Kingdom, which is must-see TV for me. And that's the lesson I've learned from there. A, A political lesson, to be sure. Well, so let's bring another data point into this then, three. And that's the number of Republican defectors it would take to bring down one of these nominees, uh, which will be more difficult than ever because Democrats gutted the filibuster when they held power in the Senate. So, you know, thinking through these examples, Nancy, are are there major red flags on any of these nominees on the Republican side that could actually cause them to potentially lose enough support that, that their nomination might be in jeopardy? And that's assuming that the Democrats hold firm, too. I don't think so. I mean, I think the biggest person who was vulnerable was Rex Tillerson for Secretary of State, given his ties to Russia, and Senator John McCain and Senator Lindsey Graham and even Senator Marco Rubio initially had raised a ton of questions about those ties to Russia. I've been hearing just from people in the transition that those meetings with Tillerson, the private meetings he's been having with senators have been going really well, and that you know he's kind of saying all the right things behind closed doors to appease people on his ties to Russia, and just casting as something that he had to do as a CEO of a global company, and and they seem quite receptive to that argument. And I've heard also that Rubio is softening in a bit on that. And so I think for people like Tillerson or even Jeff Sessions uh, for Attorney General, his hearings are going to start on Tuesday. I think the thinking is that, you know, Republicans feel like those people will probably sail through. The question is just how much do the Democrats dirty them up so that they are not able to implement everything that they want as cabinet heads? How, How... you know, do they enter their cabinet post weakened in any way? If you had to pick one person, uh, uh, my guess would be, I, I agree with you on Tillerson. I mean, I don't think you get to be the head of ExxonMobil without uh, having some skill in, uh, you know, behind closed doors. And you could easily see how he just brushes that off as and explains he's executing his fiduciary responsibilities there. Uh, he's also a Texan, which I think uh, helps in a, uh, a party where Texas plays a very big role. Um, I tend to think Sessions would be in more trouble if the Republican Party was constituted differently, meaning there's almost no African-American support uh, for that party. No one's elected with African-American votes in that party. And in another party where there were more uh, Republicans who who relied on African-American votes and, and states with high uh, African-American populations, I think it would be much more resonant and they would have much more sensitivity than they're going to, I think, when it comes to sessions. Uh, so to me, if there was one person it was going who was going to have a problem or is going to pro- have a problem, it's probably Mnuchin. And, and this is pure speculation, and uh, I, I should <laughs> uh, caution. Um, and But my speculation is based on the fact that he doesn't have a lot of experience in the political realm, which means he w- may not be as smooth uh, or as deft in uh, fending off some of these charges and in saying the kinds of things that the Senate needs to hear. But also, uh, I just think that's a story that could very easily capture a news cycle. And I think uh, that makes him the most vulnerable of all. I, I tend to think no one's going to get shot down, but if one was, that would be the one that I 
uh, singled out. And, and the, you know, the point you bring up about the political pressure is really interesting because, in fact, it is Mnuchin that Allied Progress, a, a progressive outside group, has singled out, and they're running TV ads urging senators uh, Dean Heller in Nevada and Jeff Flake in Arizona to vote against uh, Mnuchin and why those two senators, they're both up in, in 2018. But so, that's that's pretty much it in terms of the vulnerable, potentially vulnerable Republicans. It's also are, brilliant politics because those are states, I mean, lots of those Sunbelt states that saw huge numbers of foreclosures. That's a great point. Yeah. And I think that the transition, the Trump transition is very aware of Mnuchin's vulnerabilities, just to go back to what you said, Charlie, both sort of the foreclosure question, but also, you know, he has no Washington experience, no Washington ties. So, you know, Senator Sessions, for instance, has, you know, he knows all the Republican senators that he's going before. Mnuchin has been a Democratic donor in the past. He worked on Wall Street. He was at Goldman Sachs for 17 years. And a lot of bankers have a real, I'm the master of the universe sensibility. And that uh, tone will not fly with senators who view themselves as the masters of the universe. And so I know that the Trump transition People are really coaching him. You know, they're doing these mock, they call them murder boards, where they, you know, run them through what a confirmation hearing will look like. I know that they're really prepping him to answer questions in an extremely deferential way and not get defensive with uh, senators, even Republican ones. And Nancy makes a really uh, smart point that, that I overlooked, which was the idea that you really can't discount the role that uh, Senate deference is going to play in terms of deferring to one of their own. I mean, that is a uh, an institution that loves itself and <laughs> relies. With sessions, you're talking with about. sessions, <laughs> and they're going to give him as much deference as they can. I mean, it doesn't guarantee he gets in. I mean, we've, we've seen with John Tower in the past that uh, you know, it's not a guarantee. It's not a lock, but it does give him an advantage that others like Mnuchin exactly wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And Hillary Clinton and John Kerry certainly took advantage of that when they were nominated for Secretary of State in recent years. So all all of this uh, cabinet, this big cabinet push to get everyone installed quickly. Nancy, you mentioned before it has a policy end to it. We're focusing on the political angle right now, but but it, the the ultimate end is to get the Trump administration off and running as quickly as possible. And there's been a lot of talk, especially on the Hill this week, as Congress got back about uh, repealing Obamacare. You know, what else is what's the plan for that, and what else is on the docket as as these folks get installed at their agencies? So there's basically three major policy things that uh, the Trump administration wants to do in the first 100 days. They want to undo a bunch of regulations, which I feel like hasn't gotten as much press and perhaps is like less sexy, but it's just going to be a huge thing that they do. And and partly that will just be through executive action, and partly they'll do some of that with Congress unrolling um, some of the recent regulations that Obama put in place at the end. They're going to try to repeal Obamacare, and they're going to try to do tax reform, which is they're going to do it through a budget process called reconciliation that will be part of repealing Obamacare. I think the tricky thing is, is that just... You know, repealing Obamacare and health care, as we know, is a political landmine regardless of which party you are. You know, Paul Ryan has caught tons of flack over the years for, you know, trying to change Medicare, which seniors universally love regardless of political party. You know, Hillary Clinton was really upended as first lady by trying to do health care reform. And so I think that there's a lot of political dangers in trying to do Obamacare first, particularly since the Republicans haven't coalesced around what they'll put in its place. Well, let's shift from from that to something that distracted a little bit from the policy talk and the goals this week. And the the data point for this is 119. And that's the number of House Republicans who voted uh, behind closed doors in a secret ballot 
to radically change the Office of Congressional Ethics, which is one of the uh, main oversight bodies that kind of is policing what's going on on Capitol Hill. And they did this as part of a larger rules package that was supposed to come up on the first day of the new Congress. And it caused a huge uh, media and constituent outcry that resulted in them pulling uh, that particular change the next day. So, Charlie, what happened here? And, and you know, what's the bigger picture? Why does this matter, given that it's not actually happening? What a circus. I mean, that was an unmitigated PR disaster. Uh, the the idea of trying to squeeze through those rules changes to uh, defang the uh, Office of Congressional Ethics. Uh, but I think to understand that, it's important to think about sort of member psychology. And, and that's, I think, which really laid the groundwork for, for what happened with these rule changes. Because you know, members, people tend not to think of them as, as human beings. You know, we, we, we mock them. And, you know, you don't think of them on a human Sometimes uh, they don't behave level. like human beings. Right. But I mean, at, at, you know, when you think of them that way, you begin to understand. And when you talk to them and, and, and think through the way they act, you know, they all, they're, members often feel aggrieved that, you know, everyone's after them. And particularly if you've been through, you, you already feel like your life uh, is in the spotlight under the microscope all the time. You feel like you disclose so much of your life, you show so much of your life. And so uh, they get especially sensitive when it comes to disclosing uh, and being investigated or being questioned about about these kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, the press and the public, on the other hand, wants more transparency and more transparency and wants to understand more and more. So there's there's this this tension that exists in the back in the background, I think what these members who pursued this and the ringleaders of it tended to be members who had gone through the ringer of this OCE process. They felt very aggrieved and wronged by it, and they felt like they were going to sneak this through customs. They were going to pay back the folks that uh, had investigated either them or their staff or made their lives uh, hell for, for a time. And this is the kind of thing I think you see from members. And again, the ringleaders of this were members of a certain feather. They were they tend to be safe members who feel like, you know what, I could probably squeeze this through. I'm not really under threat. You'd never see members who are in competitive districts do things like this. These were all members, whether you're talking about Goodlad or Sam Graves or all the folks that have been identified in the press as uh, leaders of this effort. They're all folks who regularly win two thirds of the vote or 60% of the vote. The only one in even a vaguely competitive district would have been Peter Roskam and he won with 60%. So these are people that are pretty safe and feel like they could probably get away with driving something like this naturally folks like uh folks like house leadership whose job is to look out for the entire flock including the competitive members saw this as a landmine immediately and tried to warn them off it but you know it didn't happen and and, uh they saw the pr disaster that was looming nobody listened and they pushed it through and the the consequences were uh I, i think you know very serious i mean this was their first day was blown up and it just underscored all the reasons people hate Congress. I mean, keep in mind, congressional disapproval ratings are roughly 80%. You know, so, or, or looked at it another way, approval ratings for Congress as an institution have been under 20% for years now. And it's because of things like that. And Nancy, it just totally blew Obamacare out of the water the first day that they were planning to come back and kind of start this this grand sweeping plan, right? Yeah, and it was just, it was kind of remarkable to watch because the Republicans finally, after years, control both the White House and Congress. There's so many things that they could do legislatively that they've been promising their constituents. And, you know, repealing Obamacare is a very key one of those. And rather than focusing on that, 
or just focusing on Speaker Ryan getting reelected and smoothly and showing that they can govern really without incident. Instead, the first day back was completely overwhelmed by this ethics office gutting and then reversal. Yeah, I think it was definitely an, an unforeseen landmine, uh, one that they've moved past, though. They took it out of the package and, and kind of moved on. And let's shift from the cabinet hearings to uh, another data point on uh, the Trump transition right now, and that's 167. And January 11th, in addition to all those hearings we talked about, is also scheduled to be the date of Trump's first post-election press conference, 167 days after his last one during the campaign. So that's the short version of what's happening and kind of that that number and the the how unusual that is is typically about as far as the press gets around to explaining at least on Twitter talking about this. So uh, Hadas, why does this actually matter? And, and what can we expect to happen? Well, it matters not only because this is another norm that Trump has broken, obviously, that he has gone the longest and any really president-elect has gone in having any sort of press conference. Uh, the other thing that matters is that it's sort of hypocritical. He bashed Hillary Clinton for a long time for not doing press conferences, and now he's doing the same thing. But the number one reason why it matters is that the media hasn't really had the chance to directly question the president-elect about anything really about his uh, cabinet choices, about his policy proposals, and he is just sort of avoiding them. He has answered a few questions in really short kind of gaggles that happen outside of Mar-a-Lago's doors. They shout some questions at him. He answers them quickly. But to have this formal press conference that's going to be broadcast around the world where he is uh, facing a bank of journalists and he answers their questions directly, uh, that hasn't happened yet. And that's a very important thing because he also hasn't necessarily done a ton of, let's say, interviews like he was doing the first couple weeks after after the election. So we just, all we can get is his tweets, what his staff are saying, and there's kind of no direct, quick accountability to answering questions. And a lot of those questions have built up basically over the course of Oh, those. yeah. And there's, and maybe, who knows, maybe that's part of the tactic that there's so many questions to get through. Uh, you can only get through so many, and uh, that's going to be up to the reporters to figure out what's the most important thing to get to. Nancy? Yeah, I mean, it's just remarkable. You know, NPR puts together some really good stats just about past president-elects and how many press conferences they've had. And, you know, President Obama, when he was president-elected, gave 18 press conferences. George W. Bush gave 11. And like Hadass said, and uh, that's a good point, is just there's so many questions built up about what Trump thinks about, uh, you know, nuclear security, what he thinks about intelligence briefings, Russia, uh, how he's going to handle repealing Obamacare. There's just like so many questions day after day, and we just have no clarity on it. And I think it's not just the press garping. I, I just think the American public has very little sense of what to expect. Right. All we have to go on right now are his tweets. And, and I mean, listen, as any probably candidate or politician would say, they uh, like controlling the message. They like controlling the narrative. And w the way they control the narrative is by controlling when they do interviews, controlling when they do press conferences and controlling who asks them questions. And Trump using Twitter to push out his message at any one time is part of that. In a press conference situation, as we saw, for example, with Hillary Clinton at the UN, when she was talking about her emails, it can sometimes get away from you. And in a way, that you can't control. And they clearly have wanted to take a long time to prepare for this press conference because, as we've talked about, there are a ton of questions to get through. 
And I can't wait to see uh, how he performs, you know, what his skill level is, because it's not his sweet spot. He's not especially quick on his feet. Uh, he does not react well to aggressive, hostile questioning. And we saw that in the debate with, with folks like uh, Megyn Kelly and in other debates. And so what is he going to do? Is he going to complain about every question uh, that they were not fair or that they're being mean to him? Is he, is he going to single out the failing finances of the uh, news publication of the <laughs> reporter who asked? Because that is the way these uh, these conferences go. And so so uh, I'm really curious to be, see how he executes it for the first time. Well, also just January 11th when he's supposed to be holding the press conference, which was originally supposed to be just a press conference about how he would handle. And it was supposed to be in December. Right. It was originally in December. How he would handle his conflicts of interest has now turned into like a press conference, general press conference, free for all. But it's happening January 11th when there are six confirmation hearings. Um, interesting a, timing. Yeah. And Super so, it's a, you know, there's going to be just so much news that day. A lot of the people that have confirmation hearings that day are very high profile picks like Secretary of State pick Rex Tillerson. And so it's all going to be happening within, you know, an eight to 10 hour period. There's a clear reason for that. I mean, you know, you could say, oh, he was waiting for President Obama to give his farewell speech, whatever. Uh, that's, I mean, you could hold a press conference really on any day. And why, just think about, like, usually the simplest reason is the correct answer. Why Why are they holding it on January 11th when there are all of these confirmation hearings where there's a lot of questions to be answered, for example, about ties to Russia for certain cabinet picks and their finances and how they stand on things. So that day is going to be insane. Well, it's also just a blatant attempt to screw with the media and with Democrats and opposition groups because there's just there's not enough bandwidth necessarily yeah, to cover all those. There's things. only so much that the public will take in at any one time. And there's usually only one or two main stories that dominate the headlines for that day. I have a feeling that the headlines will be dominated by the press conference more so than these confirmation hearings. But it might be that the more important news is going to be from the confirmation hearings, not so much from the press conference. That's a really smart point uh, you were making, Nancy, about the bandwidth problem. It's something that, you know, people, readers don't think about a lot. But as an editor, something that, that I think about a lot, you know, we're always criticized. No matter what we do, we're going to get criticized. We understand that here but we're often criticized for things that we that are difficult for us to control which is allocation of resources and and that is a real allocation of, re, of uh reportorial uh resources issue that day i mean we are uh, we are a big news organization with a ton of reporters and even for us it's going to be right. a huge strain covering these hearings figuring out you know uh, figuring out the lanes drawing up the plan devoting the right reporters and editors to covering all this news in a single day and for most news uh, publications it's going to be very difficult and that is by design and it's actually you know from a, a tactical standpoint it's pretty smart right and think about which which headline are you going to put as the top a1 story on your paper or which story are you going to lead with on your cable news show uh, and also with the because you also have to think about the bandwidth of the readers and the viewers what are they going to be capable of most people aren't like us sitting at their desks all day reading the news watching Twitter watching cable news they are dealing with their own lives and they'll maybe tune in a little bit in the morning a little bit at night and they just want get to, to get the quick rundown of what's the biggest thing that happened that day i think it, w it was instructive to to look at the questions that uh, president obama fielded in 
uh, November 2008 when he was the president-elect. And, you know, there was some frivolous stuff in there. It was, you know, have you decided where you're going to send your kids to school? Have you decided what kind of dog you're going to get them? Because he had, you know, there was a, he had made his family that promise when he had started running for president. Um, you know, questions about what would happen to his soon-to-be vacant Senate seat, stuff like that. But there's also, there's some questions in there that I thought were strangely evocative of stuff that, that Trump might face. This is about uh, how uh, then-president-elect Obama was uh, going to push policy while he wasn't yet the president and President Bush was still in office. A uh, question about getting congratulations from Iran and an adversary on mm-hmm. his victory in the election. A uh, question about what he thought about the state of U.S. intelligence, which is obviously a hot topic uh, on and off Twitter for, for President-elect Trump right now. I, I feel like, you know, we could see uh, a lot of this stuff come back when when Trump steps before the cameras. Right take away Iran, put in Russia, uh, use the exact same question about intelligence. All of that could be very useful. And I'm sure that the Trump uh, uh, administration is currently looking at those questions. And we are all formulating our own questions right now. And I'm sure viewers will be sending us or our listeners will be sending us their ideas for what they think we should be asking. It will also be interesting to see who gets picked. Uh, right. Who gets uh, you, you, whether they plant anyone there? I mean, I wouldn't put it past uh, their operation to do that. Is it is it a bunch of friendly voices that they look to, or do they just go randomly to hostile voices? It'll make it an enormous difference because no mainstream outlet is going to be asking about his dog or where Baron Trump is going to go to school. I mean, there's just too much out there and there are too many questions about other more substantive matters. There's no way that they're going to only go to friendly news outlets because that would just be, I mean, I guess they could, but... It would become I, a story unto itself. That would be that would be the huge story and it would. I think it would make them seem weak and they know it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you're right in what you're saying, but they've broken every convention and they feel like they can stick it to the media at all times and they don't have to follow any rules. And so I wouldn't be that surprised if they did see a a couple of questions to very friendly outlets. Except that Trump has said repeatedly in past interviews that he really does read the New York Times. Like that's one of the first things that he reads and they've gotten a lot of access to him. You know, he sat down after he was elected with a bunch of reporters and the editorial board. I think it's his hometown paper. And so I could see... You know, while he may call on Sean Hannity and Joe Scarborough, for instance, um, for some softball questions or friendlier questions, at least, I think that he will call on at least the New York Times, too, because he's that's the paper he reads. And I think that he cares about what they write. Hadass, last word. Uh, I'm sure that there will still be quite a bit of uh, rehashing of the election at this press conference. I'm sure he will call out individual news organizations, people who think that just because he's now president elect, he will somehow be nicer. I really wouldn't be surprised if we see him calling out like a little Katie Turner again or something like that hopefully not because now that you're a president-elect it is the stakes are even higher but it's going to be a fun day all right let's switch gears a bit for our next data point let's talk about democrats and the number four that's the number of house democrats who voted against nancy pelosi for speaker on the floor this week as paul ryan was re-elected so it's a continuation of the pushback she's gotten from a wing of the democratic caucus since the party's disappointing november election charlie at some level, this was the least dramatic speaker vote in a few years, but what's going on among Democrats right now is actually illustrative, isn't it? So who, who are the four and what do they represent? It was least dramatic, but it was, I think, in a lot of ways, most revealing. Uh, and, and 
the four who, who defected were uh, Jim Cooper of Tennessee, who is sort of a noted blue dog and fiscal conservative, uh, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, who's kind of a, something of a centrist, uh, Ron Kind of Wisconsin, again, more of a moderate, uh, former leader of the New Moderates in the Democratic Caucus, and Kathleen Rice, who's a fairly junior member from uh, Long Island. And they're all revealing in their own ways. Uh, I mean, less people defected from uh, Nancy Pelosi than uh, in after the t- 2010 elections where the, the the numbers were greater but keep in mind the people who voted against her back then are gone not not necessarily because they retired of their own volition but because they lost in large part because of a national democratic party that was caricatured as Nancy Pelosi's party and it, it, and it reveals that the, the Democratic these party these are people who survived the 2010 wave and then kind of retired or were defeated in subsequent years as the party continued to shift away from them the old blue dogs yes right? sorry so so Lots of those members ended up losing their seats in Congress. And what we have now is a smaller Democratic caucus, and it's much more liberal than before. So the numbers are very small in terms of defections compared to after the 2010 debacle. Um, But they're all revealing in their own way. Like, uh, oftentimes, uh, oftentimes, all the time, members are always thinking about what's in it for them, what the personal political calculus is. And for all of those four, there is a calculus. And you've got, you know, uh, Cooper doesn't represent the most uh, conservative district in Tennessee, but it is conservative by Democratic standards. He's also a fiscal conservative, obviously. You know, he's voted against her in the past for speaker. And so uh, that in some ways explains him. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is no uh, help. She's no asset to Southern Democrats. Uh, Kirsten those Cinema, that are left. Right. The, the, the remaining ones. Kirsten Cinema is uh, sort of an interesting character, more of a moderate. She's from Arizona, uh, from a district that's vaguely competitive, although I did have a really interesting conversation with a member who uh, seemed to look down their nose at Kirsten Cinema, who felt that she uh, strayed from the Democratic Party orthodoxy way too much for that district, meaning uh, this person had less respect for her because he thought that uh, she ran scared uh, too often. But that may be a reflection of the fact that she has some uh, ambitions to run statewide possibly one day. And so she's going to have to keep a more moderate voting record. And when you vote against Nancy Pelosi, that establishes you as something of a moderate character and, you know, in, for, for a state like Arizona. And then Ron Kind, Kind may have been the most interesting of all. He was really lucky that he did not have a uh, challenge this year because he very well could have been taken down. Because keep in mind, you know, Wisconsin went red this year for the first time in a presidential race since uh, I guess it would have been 84, but it went really red in Ron Kind's district because Kind has been, he's been kind of an anomaly as a, as a member of Congress and that he has a, a, a largely rural district that has remained dem- fairly democratic. And, and there aren't a whole lot of rural, small town oriented districts that continue to send Democrats to Washington. About the only region left in the country that sends Democrats back to Washington is kind of like the upper upper Mississippi River Valley area, like western Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, uh, you know, northeast Iowa. And all those areas really went hard for Donald Trump. And so he has some skin in the game and getting some distance from the National Party. And lastly, Kathleen Rice is interesting because her grievance is she was very straightforward. Her point was that we are just not getting enough uh, newer members and new blood into leadership in the House. And she's a new member, so she doesn't have the same kind of ties to Pelosi that the Democratic caucus does. She wasn't there for the historic uh, election of, of Nancy Pelosi as speaker in 2006. So she's not as invested in it anymore. So let's let's bring in Eli 
Stokels, who's back on American soil, uh, to you know, zoom out for us, like outside the house, like the national political implications of this. Like, how does this this illustrates what the party's facing a little bit in 2018 and kind of going beyond into the post Obama era, right? Yeah, you know, it's like disorienting, incredibly disorienting to be back on American soil after a few weeks away, and then you come into work, and then Scott Bland's hosting the Nerdcast. It's like I just (laughs) there's a lot of change. I don't know if I can handle all this change. Kind of uh, like Ryan Seacrest taking over for Dick Clark. Isn't okay, it? I, I saw like five minutes of Ryan Seacrest the other night and was horrified. So let's just, this is just, I can only handle so much here. Uh, it's good to be back. And yeah, I mean, I think what Charlie's talking about is the stale, the staleness of the party, sort of nationally on a macro level. Um, and I think that's really evident now when Barack Obama is going to fly away in the helicopter and the face of the party effectively is, is you know, Nancy Pelosi and then Chuck Schumer and people who had just been in D.C. for a long time, not all that compelling of characters and not all that representative of the parts of the country where the, the party um, really needs to make new inroads. You think back to 2010, two years after the Obama presidency and the Republican wave, the t- first big Tea Party wave, and you think about all the people who were elected in those elections in 2010 and then 2012, um, a lot of those people were the people that we thought were going to win the nomination for president last year, um, you know, among the Republicans. A lot of these new faces, the Rubios, the Ted Cruz's, the, you know, Rand Paul, these were the people who were going to come in and save the Republican Party. They, the, in the primary, they talked about this wealth of, you know, this embarrassment of riches uh, when it came to new, fresh Republican talent, people really in their 40s uh, and 50s who could be that new face. And there was a fight to, you know, who it would be. It's hard to envision that on the Democratic side. Kamala Harris is, you know, even before she was sworn in, people were saying, oh, well, she could run for president. I mean, that's right. Like you, you hear that chatter when somebody gets elected and they're compelling and they're new. And But it seems far-fetched, right, to be talking about that at this point. But they just don't have much of a bench, whether we're talking about people you know, being potential presidential candidates in four years, or just people who can sort of come forward and win over some of these Senate seats and, and House seats and, and make uh, it a little more competitive on the Hill. Because right now they're just sort of, you know, they're in the wilderness and there is, there's, there's no clear savior out there in the, uh, you know, in the thicket or whatever. Well, apart from just the bench point, the the lack of bench that Eli's talking about, I think that there's also just new policy messages that the Democrats are going to have to come up with. I mean, Hillary Clinton's message really did not resonate with voters, and it really didn't resonate with white working class voters. And I think that she presumed that this whole Obama coalition and by having Latinos vote for her and all these people that came out for Obama, that they would A, come out for her and, and B, support her and, and C, really get behind her policy ideas. And I think the Democratic Party now needs to sort of revisit some of those ideas and think, well, how can we formulate new policies that help people in Ohio and Wisconsin and Florida, these states that, you know, Hillary Clinton more or less ignored. And I think that that's a huge challenge for them as well. I mean, you could argue that Republicans had the same challenges and they didn't necessarily come up with great policy ideas. They just elected an outsider candidate in Trump. But I think that the Democrats, particularly on economic issues and thinking about how they're going to pitch themselves as people who can help white working class people, that's where they have to do a lot of work. Is that something they can do in the minority in Congress where, you know, you can find unity of purpose maybe against something, but it's a little harder to push your own 
your own ideas if you can't pass them. Exactly. And I think that what they're going to be banking on is that Trump's policies fail the very people who elected him and that they can capitalize on that. Like perhaps the repeal of Obamacare will blow up. I mean, I feel like that's what the Democrats are, you know, hoping for. People will be so mad that they lose their health insurance that they can capitalize on that. But yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, the pendulum does always tend to swing back and forth. And so it's unclear what it will be. But I think it's you know, you could predict that there will be some reaction to the Trump administration and its policies and that a new generation of Democrats will sort of have to come forward. Um, I do think it's just interesting, you know, for a long time, especially after the advent of the Tea Party, we talked about the sort of litmus test politics on the right and the sort of ideological absolutism of, you know, you have to be this way or you're going to get primaried. If you're soft on any one of these issues, you're going to get primaried. Trump has sort of blown that up, right? Trump is... is you know, a lot of if there are any concerns on the Hill right now about Trump, it's is he a real conservative? Is he really going to adopt our agenda? It's you know, but there's this amazing governing opportunity that he has delivered to Republicans right now that they weren't expecting, and I think that for that reason they're going to sit there and say, well, I don't really agree with him on this, or I'm a little worried about what he might want to do on infrastructure. I might not like Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State because these Russia things really concern me, but. I think what trumps that is the opportunity to get something done. And I think Republicans have learned that. And I think, you know, what Charlie was talking about, we go back to the beginning of this conversation about all the little nitty gritty things about who each person represents and where their issue set is and everything else. I mean, you know, for some people to come forward as, as big figures in the Democratic Party, they're going to have to have a bigger overarching message and to sort of stop worrying maybe quite so much about some of the identity politics and the litmus test things that have become incredibly important for the progressive base uh, because it does need to grow. And, and these coalitions don't grow if the focus you know, and the issue set is increasingly narrow. And it's worth remembering that holding the White House papers over a lot of frustration and dissent and stunted ambition in a party. Uh, and all of that was bubbling up during the Obama era, but it never really came to the surface because they held the White House and uh, Democratic Party rank and file loved uh, Barack Obama. So uh, now, when he uh, is about to leave the stage, it's all about to break out, and we're going to see a, there is a coming civil war in the Democratic Party between the moderate and progressive wings, much the same as you saw in the, in the Republican Party when they were out of power. And you're going to see it, uh, you already see it in the DNC chairman's race, uh, where the backdrop is uh, a battle between the uh, Bernie Sanders-Warren wing and then the Clinton wing. And I mean, I don't even need to ask because it's a funny question, like, where is the energy in the Democratic Party? Is it in the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing, or is it in the Clinton wing? I mean, we, it's obvious that all of the energy is in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, the Bernie and the uh, Warren wing. And uh, that is where you're starting to see all the agitation and uh, all the action these days. And we're going to start seeing it bubbling up in primaries as soon as this year. Right in our backyard, we've got a Virginia governor's race that got really interesting just this week uh, with Tom Perriello, the former Democratic congressman, a favorite of, of President Obama, who jumped in against maybe a more moderate uh, Democratic lieutenant governor who is expected to kind of waltz through that primary. And Charlie, I mean, this this could become kind of the first opportunity for vote. the DNC chair raises, you know, an opportunity for party apparatchiks to, to kind of figure this out among themselves. Voters, Democratic voters are going to get to do it in Virginia in a few months time. Yeah, it's no co coincidence that the marquee race of 2017 will be 
uh, exactly what we're talking about here, a battle between the progressive and the moderate wings of the Democratic Party. I mean, the announcement of Tom Piriello, who was a progressive uh, Virginia Democrat, uh, coming out of the blue, no one expected that. Everything looked to be lined up for the moderate, who was very much in the Virginia, not conservative Democrat, but sort of moderate Democratic uh, tradition. I mean, that battle is one that everyone in the nation is going to focus on, in part because there's no racism, an odd year, and Virginia has that uh, tradition of the odd year election. Uh, but this is going to be a center stage. We're going to see that fight uh, take place right now. All right. That's a great place to wrap up. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Scott. Nancy, thank you. Thanks. Eli, thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. Goodbye, Hadass. Bye, everyone. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, please send in your questions, uh, if you have them, to nerdcast at politico.com. And also a big thank you to executive producer Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator Bill Kukman, and Nerdcast researcher and Politico producer Zach Montalaro. See you next week. <laughs>